Hello and welcome to Movies, Murder and Mayhem. The true crime, the true horror and the true stories. I will never get this bit right. Behind true crime, the true stories and the true horror behind some of our favourite horror films and some of our not so favourite horror films. My name is Ruby Noir. And I'm Egraine. And here we are. Here we are. Here we are now. Here we are now. Yes. Welcome. Chatting about horrible, horrible things. <laughs> yeah, actually my thing my thing isn't great, but it's not a massive bummer. Doesn't involve it doesn't actually doesn't involve any deaths. But there is mayhem. Much mayhem. Uh mine's much the same. Ah, so it's actually quite a fun episode then. Yeah. It is. I mean I mean what you're doing. <laughs> actually no, mine's a bit of a bummer. There's child abuse in it, so... Oh, okay. Well, we do that first, then. Get the child abuse out of the way. We can, <laughs> we can absolutely start with the child abuse. Um, yes. What What have you been up to? What have you been watching before we delve into the child abuse? What have I been watching? I mean, I have I have been quite busy, but I was very gratified to actually get a chance to get out to the cinema and see uh, Evil Dead Rise, because unlike you, I don't automatically get tickets to every <laughs> single horror movie. <laughs> Um, and we went to a screening and the, the title card went over the lake at the very beginning. A guy three rows in front of me clapped the screen. So it was a very good audience to be watching the movie with. Yeah, I had to restrain myself from clapping as well. It was a very good title card. It, is. it was very effective, I have to say. I yeah. loved it. I had a great time. Um, and I've also been, because uh, I've been having, I've been, I've been a bit down and life's been a bit stressful. So I've also been um binging a rewatch of dragula to make myself cheer myself up oh that's always yeah. good. good nothing like watching a bunch of drag queens get like ab- tortured to cheer <laughs> you up i know right like not only have you been buried alive but you've been buried alive in a corset in a wig <laughs> in the most uncomfortable pair of heels ever yeah <laughs> so that's yeah. been fun yeah i went to see the heathers musical oh i also went to see the heathers musical i hated it with a passion mm I saw you went about a week after me because yeah. I was stuck in your stories and I was actually really offended that you went to a musical without me. Because like, listen, this is a podcast that already exists. I will admit this, but I honestly really want to do a podcast where I just make you watch musicals and then you get you get to react to them. <laughs> you know what? We should do it. Um, uh, I guess I it was actually it was bought as a ticket for my birthday. And my friend Sarah was like, I know you hate musicals, but here's a ticket for a musical for your birthday. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I went along for the crack, like, obviously, to have a night out. But yeah, I sat through it. And it was so funny because, like, someone on my left was crying and then someone on my right was crying. And I was like, what are you crying at? This I is a terrible musical. Cry. I mean, I think I definitely enjoyed it more than you did. It's, it, it's solidly mid-tier musical for me. Like, it's... You know, it's fine. It's definitely like there's a um a fairly contemporary um trend of modern musicals being marketed very specifically to teenagers. And that was Heather's was like an off Broadway hit. It was a bit of a cult musical. It actually premiered not even in New York. It premiered in like California, I think in L.A. Um, and sort of got like it, you know, and uh, I can relate to this as a theater as a theatre child, a theatre kid, um, it got popular by like teenagers listening mm-hmm. to it on Spotify and stuff. So, like, I'm sure you noticed in the theatre, there was a very 
like very young demographic going to. I was mm. looking at people being like, some of these children are way too young to be at this. Right? There was like a nine-year-old in our audience. And I was like, I know. And they're like, they're just like, they're listening to this. And then they're like, mom, I want to go to a musical. And the parents are like, I, you know, they don't remember what the movie was about, apparently. (laughs) And there's like a full on, you know, sex scene in it. And you're like, cool, cool. I do not remember that from the movie, but cool. Which is also the um, best, best song in the show, I will say. But uh, (laughs) Dead Girl Walking. It's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just didn't think it was a film that you would necessarily make into a musical. No, and like I think, I mean, uh, myself and my my husband went, and like I, it is good. I like it, but it definitely like I think there is a good, like you can have a lot of fun with the juxtaposition of musical and like really dark, hmm. co- like dark dark comedy, um, but I don't think it does enough of that. I think it goes pretty light on it. <laughs> and then you went to see the SpongeBob musical. I did chat about see- that. I did go to see the Spongebob musical. So you're saying that to shame me, but it was a fucking great. And I want you and all the other people who messaged me on Instagram after I put that up to be ashamed of your musical shaming of me because it was great. And not a lot of people were there, unfortunately, but the cast were wonderful. It was a really, really fun show. Um, it's it's like it's very stupid, but um, the music is genuinely fantastic. And it's just really, really fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> next time it's in town. Uh, I'm going to bring you. And you're going to hate it because you don't like musicals. <laughs> I like Rocky Horror. You do like Rocky Horror. <laughs> no, we see, I need to start introducing you to the, the weirder side of musicals. I think that's it. I think, I think if Beetlejuice ever makes it to the West End, we're going to have to do a trip. Okay. Because the there Beetlejuice was... musical is great. There was an announcement of another musical because... I said to our friend Carrie, I'm never going back to a musical again unless it's some random like horror movie. And then it got announced, like not coming to board gosh, but is a musical is being made from it. And I was like, that's what I'll go to the theater for. And I cannot remember what it is. <laughs> I want to say Saw, but I don't think there should be. Oh a musical my God, I would see a Saw movie so fast <laughs> or a Saw musical. That would be so funny. There are saw themed escape rooms in London that I really want. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of people, obviously, who have done them. And it's just, I get such bad FOMO being friends with people from like London and England because there's so much. So much better stuff than we do. It's just so disappointing. I know. I mean, we have been getting some pretty good musicals. I've already, we've already booked our, excuse me, we've booked our tickets for Hamilton 2024 in the board, gosh. (laughs) And like, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I'm a massive nerd, and I'm specifically a massive theater or musical theater nerd. I've already seen Hamilton three times. Oh my god! <laughs> One of them was on accident. Okay. Uh, I know some people at home are asking, "How do you see a three-hour musical on accident?" Uh, I'll leave that to your imagination. <laughs> I know. I just even the thought of you saying three hours, I'm like, uh, uh, including the interval. I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm not sure I would subject you to live theater just because I feel like if you really hate something, it's harder to just walk away from it if the people are standing in front of you. <laughs> but I do think I should start introducing you because I, I, we can get some good pro shots and stuff. Actually, you can get some good pro shots of the SpongeBob musical. <laughs> there we go. It's a date. 
Yeah, you can't wait. Um, I have been re-watching Buffy in between my watch of Married at First Sight Australia, the recent <laughs> series. I can't believe you give me shit for going to musicals and you watch Married at First Sight. Because <laughs> I just need some fluff. So like, do I. <laughs> yeah, but there's fluff and then there's like the Spongebob musical. And like there's not having married to pay sight. Bugger off. It's funny. It makes me feel better about myself. I know that I'm not a terrible person when I watch this show. That's fair. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're all absolute awful people. Do you um, watch? A lot of people I know are obsessed with Love is Blind. No, I don't watch that one. No. That one's a step too far. <laughs> yeah. That's not for me now. Um, married at first sight. Yay, stuff like Love Island and Love is Blind. No. No. I'm good. I'm good. Um, yes, I've been re-watching Buffy and realizing just how, like in a good way, I don't want to make myself sound really horrible, but it's really bad. <laughs> like it's the acting in a good way? It yeah, I mean the acting's terrible for the majority of it. Um, <laughs> special effects are awful. And literally the only character that I'm like, I actually really, really like is Cordelia. That's, yeah, Cordelia, justice for Cordelia, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Justice for Charisma Carpenter. Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would argue that the acting isn't necessarily bad, but it's very stylized and we're not used to it anymore. Yeah. Like Joss Whedon, hate him or hate him, had this thing where he created these universes where people spoke like people never would in the real world mm. and just kind of went with it. And it made sense in context. Um, and like we're not, it's much more difficult to um, to stomach at the moment because it's just not the style of acting and that we're used to. Because if you look back at any um, episodic action TV show from the 90s, yeah. it all seems fucking terrible. But I think it was, there was a stylistic yeah. thing. It's like watching a 1940s melodrama. And you're yeah. like, is this good? I don't know. So yeah, let's well let's let's move on to our why we're here. Our oh, why we're here. Death. Tell some stories. Yes. So this week I am telling the true story behind the film Orphan. Oh, um, I ha- I am concerned and terrified. <laughs> um. So Orphan is a 2009 horror film directed by Jaime Colette Serra and written by David Leslie Johnson. Um, the film stars uh, everyone's favorite horror mama Vera Farmiga <laughs> and Peter Sarsgaard as a new cu- a couple who adopt a young girl Esther, played by Isabel Furman. The new addition to the family is mysterious and soon displays psychopathic and murderous intentions, and it soon unfolds that Esther is in fact not a nine year old child, but is a full grown woman. Uh, the film then went on to have a sequel in twenty two, Orphan First Kill. So there are two stories attached to the Orphan series, one that influenced the original film as well as another story that influenced the sequel. Uh, so the the one that influenced the original film, excuse me, is the story of Barbara Skrilova, um, who, when she was 33 years old, Barbara convinced her family that she was a 12-year-old child and they went on to adopt her. Enough to put you off adoption. Yeah, I'm just looking at pictures of her. And there are some pictures where she looks quite young. And then there are other pictures where she looks like she's your accountant. How, or like, I, yeah, like, I don't know how convincing she was or were these people just really desperate for, like, a kid? Yeah, I mean, 
probably a little bit of both. I'm gonna, cause yeah, I don't think she looks that young, really. Um, so the the story starts with a single mother from the Czech Republic called Clara Morova, who had two children. She was separated from the father of her children and due to her loneliness would invite her sister Katerina to come live with her and the children. Clara met Barbara when Clara was studying to become a teacher after Barbara approached her telling her she was a 12-year-old girl called Annika who had escaped from an abusive group home. She was able to appear as a young child due to a disorder called hypopituitarism. I can't pronounce this. Let me try break it up. <laughs> I'm struggling. Sorry, Hi. I shouldn't laugh. I can't pronounce things. Hypopituitarism. Yeah. Um, pituitary glands were very hypo. There we go. Same Not thing. hyper, hypo. Mm. Um, and this caused her to look a lot smaller and younger than she actually was. You know who she um, actually reminded me a little bit of? The way she looks. Mm. Um, oh, God. What was her name? You know, the one whose mother said she was really sick and then it turned out she wasn't Blanche? I was thinking exactly the same thing. I can't remember her real name. I can only remember the name of the character based on her in the Netflix show, The Politician. Um, <laughs> but yes, Blanche something. Yep. Um, but yes, I do know exactly who you're talking about. Yes, she yeah. was... Her mother kept telling everyone that she was sick and took her for like yeah. treatments and stuff to get free shit and then eventually she snapped and her and her boyfriend killed her ma and yeah. then went on holidays to disneyland as you do as you do so clara felt sorry for barbara slash annika and took her home to care for her and even planned to eventually adopt her so barbara claimed that she was very sick and needed to attend regular doctor's appointments but would only allow clara's sister katarina to accompany her to these appointments <laughs> oh that was burp sorry um, <laughs> plot twist it turns out Katerina knew that Barbara was not a 12 year old child and she even pretended to be Barbara's doctor writing notes to Clara to explain her treatments so Clara was very sick and struggled with undiagnosed mental illness since childhood and so Barbara was able to take advantage of her confused mental state Barbara managed to convince Clara that it was her two children that were the cause of all her problems and influenced her to abuse them. Uh, Clara was addicted to Barbara's affection and so scared of losing her, she went along with Barbara's lead, locking the children up in cages and watching them with a baby monitor. The abuse was discovered due to a complete coincidence of Clara's neighbour having a newborn baby and they'd gotten the same brand of baby monitor that Clara used to monitor her kids in the cages. And so one day oh, when they no. turned it on, yeah, the signals got crossed and the neighbours saw the images of what was going on in the house. Jesus, can you imagine that coming off? Complete coincidence. Like, no, so scary. <laughs> how lucky, though, like in that way as well, that that happened, because how long would it have gone on if that hadn't? I know, like the kids probably would have ended up dying, unfortunately. Yeah. Um. So the neighbours went to the police and both Clara and Katerina were arrested However, Barbara escaped and fled the country. Barbara uh, fled the Czech Republic and scammed her way to Norway, where she got liposuction and breast reduction to make herself look more like a child. She took on the identity of a 12-year-old boy called Adam 
and entered a home for homeless children in the city of Oslo. Jesus. She was then adopted by a couple and enrolled in the local school. I want to know how she got across the country, basically, how she got across Europe. Well, you know, she was a fully grown woman with, uh, I don't know, hopefully, a, probably a fake passport in her pocket. <laughs> Uh, Barbara fooled teachers, support workers and police for several months before there was a suspicion that Adam was not who he seemed to be. Adam was exposed as Barbara Skrilova and was arrested and expedited to Czech Republic and sentenced to 12 years where she only served five and was then released due to her mental health. I mean, was she released into the custody of someone else or did she'd been treated? She was just like set free. Here you go. And it's like, oh, you've undiagnosed or untreated mental health issues. So you can't be held fully accountable yeah. by. <laughs> Basically. Um, but even like that, the where I was reading up with this, where it was like, oh, they released her due to her mental health. And you're like, well, surely it would be like released into perhaps a psychiatric unit or something. Yeah. Like, did she get the required treatments <laughs> apparently she's just lives her life now walking around whatever town in czech republic i mean if she's not scamming out. people into thinking that she's a child and for and convincing them to abuse their children then i guess that's fine but still yeah still um so then after orphan came out isabel Furman. Um, started getting loads of text messages being like, hey, there's another story about this exact thing that's happening right now. Um, and it it's very much like the Orphan uh, film. And this film then inspired her to get in touch with filmmakers and be like, we need to make a sequel. Um, so this is the case of Natalia Grace. So this is set in Indiana and there is a couple named Christine and Michael Barrett who had already had quite a few children uh, and a lot of them with special needs. Um, they adopted a what they thought or think is a six-year-old girl from Ukraine whose name was Natalia Grace. And she had a very rare form of dwarfism. It made walking really difficult for her. And she had already been living in the USA for two years before she was adopted. However, it came to light that the previous family who had adopted her had um, let her go for reasons that nobody could find. Um, so soon after she was adopted by the um, the, Barn- the Barretts, she began to exhibit strange behaviour. They said that she would threaten the family and that they caught her one day trying to pour bleach into their morning coffee. Um, and then the mother, Christine, started to suspect that Natalia was not actually a child and said that she had really advanced vocabulary and a complete lack of interest in toys. Which, like... I feel I like that know. is a spurious reason to yeah, be convinced that, like... Because especially if a child is in, like, the system. Yeah. Like, they, they have to grow up real fucking quick. Right? Yeah. So quick. And, like, I mean, Nate's five and he has really advanced vocabulary because we talk that way to him yeah like we've never baby talked to him we just talk normally to him and if we use big words he's like what does that mean and we tell him and then he starts using that word like it's not an unusual thing no it really isn't i i don't feel like 
lack of interest in toys and an advanced vocabulary is a good reason to be like, that's clearly an yeah. adult woman scamming me. Yeah. Um, the threatening Plus, stuff. Yeah, maybe if that was maybe, true. But like, yeah. But if, I mean, even the toy also, thing, like growing up in Kerry, you wouldn't have toys. So of course yeah. you wouldn't have really an interest in toys. Or also like, what toys? Yeah. Like, were you just giving her Barbies and hoping for the best? Or were you, you know, was it just like other kids hand-me-downs? Like, you know, there's, I don't know. That seems, mm, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they fully Nancy drew this case just yet. Yeah. So apparently they went to a medical expert or a doctor, whatever you call them. And this doctor. (laughs) Sorry, a medical expert or a doctor, if you want to call them that. <laughs> if that's what you would like to call them. A um, so-called doctor. <laughs> um, And apparently this doctor backed up their theory and they legally changed her age to 22. Um. They set up like a bank account for her and then they like shoved her into this apartment and basically just left her there. Um, and then it was discovered that there was like people were just like, who is living in that apartment? And they came across what seemed like this very young child. And so this was when the parents were charged with neglect. Um, and then the medical reports that that doctor had given them were refuted. Um, so even though they've been charged with neglect, the mother, Christine, still maintains that Natalia Grace is an adult um, and not a child. But her husband has turned around and admitted that she is a child and it was Christine that convinced him to lie about her age. Oh, my God. Like, I'm looking at pictures of her and even now, she doesn't look... I I think she's, like, the. uh, according to her, she's 16... And yeah, I would say she's somewhere between like in her mid-teens to early 20s at the very oldest, but it's really yeah. hard to tell. And like yeah. when she was adopted, she looks like a child. Like that's a child. Yeah. Like I was looking at pictures of her and I was like, like you can tell with the Barbara Skorlova one, yeah. you're like, she's definitely. But Natalia Grace, you're like, absolutely not. She's like she looks like a child. Yeah. She absolutely does. And I know, obviously, if she has a form of dwarfism and, and there might be other things going on, you know, she's not going to develop in quite the same way as, like, you would assume usually. But, like, that's a kid. <laughs> For real. There is a docu-series out um, about this whole case. The Curious Case of Natalia Grace. Yeah, that's it. Um, I can't see where to watch it, but it's around somewhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is the the two cases that are inspired it, orphan. It looks like this whole Natalia Grace thing as well. It's like still ongoing. Yeah, like, it is. Still yeah. people being like, she's thirty three, she's ten, she's yeah. <laughs> and so she's when like, I'm, I'm a teenager, you guys, yeah, I'm not dead. Yeah. So when the most recent orphan came out, that is what re sparked the interest in this case. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, I don't want to say this kind of thing is common, but these are not the only two cases I have heard of where basically yeah. this exact thing happened. There was like, another one where like someone who also has dwarfism pretended to be a child to get into high school. And I heard that, but I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that one because that is, I don't know. 
It yeah, feels bit... I've heard a few ones about like there was um there's a good podcast called the something can't remember what it's called which is terrible they're irish people very nice uh ladies on there talking about fun things and they were talking about the case of a woman so she was in the u.s and she was i think she was korean possibly vietnamese i can't remember feel slightly racist um but um she'd like her she divorced her husband or something and she felt really alone so she went back and enrolled in high school yeah but she was like in her 30s but you know I don't know if it's racist of them to be like Asian, all Asian women look like they're very young <laughs> or if they just genuinely have great genes. Um, and that is like that happened. But there's also the case of uh, a guy called Frederick Bourdain, who um, so uh, a Texan family, their son was kidnapped when he was quite young or he went missing, obviously presumed kidnapped. And this guy, Frederick, uh, claimed that he was him. Mm-hmm. And went back to live with the family years later. Yeah. Um, and th- there's a film called The Imposter, which is all about that, which is fascinating. It's actually made by film for that's on that's definitely on Netflix. Okay. Um, so yeah, so he was like, Hey, I'm your missing son, except yeah. that he had a European accent and was clearly a fully grown man and wasn't blonde. Um, <laughs> but like they just and and yeah, like yeah. there's a thing where it's like obviously the the psychology there is like they wanted him back so much that they were willing to believe even though it was not true um and obviously it all comes to a head and stuff like that but it's like yeah these like people impersonating fully grown adults impersonating children to get care or to go to school is actually relatively common in the sense that it's not limited to one or two people yeah that's so strange I think I kind of get it to a point though because you know if you just had a tough life and you're like I just want someone like I, I I think about this all the time and I've had a pretty blessed life I won't lie I'm like can someone just not make the decisions for me can someone just take care you know just like can I just can yeah. just someone take care of me for a while and I just I don't want any responsibilities <laughs> anymore please like can someone just do that please just for a while like I, like it obviously is horrible but I get the impetus <laughs> Not the first one with the uh, the yeah. abuse and stuff. That was terrible. Don't get that. But like, just the idea of being like, oh, people think I'm still a child. Oh, wouldn't it be great to still be a child? You don't have to pay for anything. You just do what you like. Summer's off. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I quite enjoy having the, um, being able to just order a takeaway when I want. Well, that's true, you know. Checks and balances, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah like most, most of the time, instead of going in and trying to impersonate a small child, I just have a drink instead. So it helps. Exactly. It all balances out. Yeah. Or I just <laughs> curl up in a small bowl and uh, rock back and forth a few times. Yeah. <laughs> cry like a baby. Yes, uh, exactly. Um, so, yeah, what is your story this week? My story is the story of a town that inspired the look and feel of Silent Hill. <laughs> Ooh, very relevant since there's a new Silent Hill coming out. Yeah, I know. The Town of Silent Hill, one of my favorite video game series. Uh, the movies, I think, are uh, questionable at best, but I do enjoy them very much. I love the first one. The first one, I'm absolutely. The obsessed. first one is really fun. The second one, the one with, uh, oh, what's his name? King of the North. Um, Sean Bean. No, Kit Harrington. Oh, Kit Harrington. That yeah. was very silly, but I did still enjoy it. Of course you did. Yeah, but it's not good. <laughs> no, like, it's I wouldn't not. recommend it. No, 
I couldn't tell you what happened in it, but I just remember being like, this is fun. <laughs> I remember there's a carnival at one point. Yeah, and I think I remember spoilers for that Silent Hill movie. And I think Kit Harrington is like one of the Silent Hill people. Yeah. He falls in love with them. Yeah, it's a whole, it's a weird take on it. It is. It's very it was, weird. It was very, but anyway, there is a town, an extant town that inspired, if not obviously, things like zombie nuns and pyramid heads. Um, the look and feel of the town of Silent Hill. And it is a town called Centralia and it is in Pennsylvania, the US of A. So Centralia first, uh, I suppose, became a town in the mid 1800s and 1856. Um, it was a mining town, very rich in, I've got it around here somewhere, some kind of very horrible coal. Um, and so it went through a few different, I think that's at one point there was seven mines operating out of this one town. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, anthracite coal. There we go. And during the 1800s, it was also, and this is a, a thing that I did not know about and I learned about, it was a hotbed of activity for the Molly Maguires, which was an Irish secret society. Oh. Yeah. Um, so it was a secret society that were best known for their activism am amongst uh, Irish American and Irish immigrant coal miners in Pennsylvania. They were also active in Ireland itself and in Liverpool, weirdly. They weren't a very big secret society, very specifically located. <laughs> I was like, how did the Irish manage to have a secret society? I mean, it clearly like, wasn't that secret. We've got the biggest gabber mouths like ever. If you've yeah. ever if you've ever sat in and listened to two old ones in a way, <laughs> you're like, oh. Do you know what it is though? We, they probably talked around the subject so much that no one could make head, head or tails about what they were actually talking about. You know, That's it was all true. just like sideways talk. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, the Molly Maguires, um, they actually uh, murdered the founder of the town of Centralia, uh, a man named Alexander Ray, while he was going along in his horse and buggy one day. They killed him. Don't know why. Presumably he was being mean to miners. Um, so yeah, that area of Pennsylvania was really um, a lot of Irish immigrants went mm. there to work in the mining industry. Um, it's actually a legend amongst the locals in Centralia. Um, that tells of a father, Daniel Ignatius McDermott, uh, the first Roman Catholic priest to call Centralia home, cursed the land in retaliation for being insulted, uh, insulted, assaulted by three members of the, uh, the Maguires in the uh, 1860s. Um, he said, McDermott said there would be a day when St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church would be the only structure remaining in Centralia. Uh, and many of the Molly Maguire's leaders were hanged in the 1870s, ending their crimes. Legends say that a number of the de descendants of the Maguire's still lived in Centralia up until the 80s. Hmm. So that was just a fun fact. I didn't even know that yeah. Molly Maguire's existed. Uh, at the height of its success, uh, the town of Centralia had a population of around 2,700. So it was never a very big town. Was always relatively small, but it got smaller. Um, after the 1929 uh, Wall Street crash, uh, a lot of mines closed. This led to a lot of bootleg mining, um, and off with often unsafe practices such as like so in the mines they would leave columns of coal intact to hold up the mine shafts. Yeah. Um, but because people were just doing it illegally, they just take what they could get and get out of there. There was also a lot of um open pit mining and strip mining which is just basically like blowing up the ground and grabbing what you could get again not great so i suppose this is to just demonstrate that like basically the whole town is made of coal <laughs> like under the ground like it's very very coal rich so that even though a lot of the mining companies had moved out there was still a lot there and like the bootlegging bootleg mining continued up into the 60s mm-hmm uh, and the 60s is where our story really starts is because though in May of 1962, a fire started in one of the coal seams. 
the most be- or the theory that's believed most likely to have caused it is that uh, there were a lot of unregulated landfills in the town because uh, basically the local government had stopped arranging for proper waste disposal. Mm-hmm. So what the fire department would do every year is they would go around and they would do controlled burns on these landfills to get rid of the waste because the 60s were really great for environmental action. <laughs> they were all so about that burning. Burn it. Um, and so anyway, one of these landfills is believed to have been on the site of an old open pit mining site. And so basically what happened is some of the fire got down into one of the old mine shafts and the mine shaft set on fire and the coal started burning. I just like I, I'm trying to so the whole town is built on coal. So yeah, so like what they're gonna down, but they're gonna like burn. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean when I say it's built on coal, it's not like the ground you're walking on is coal, but like Yeah, but you know, a landfill you dig underneath and create yeah. a pit. So like why would you where was the intelligence? I mean, you ask good questions. I have no answers for you. <laughs> I mean, it was the sixties. I don't. I think they just didn't think about that kind of stuff back then. Genuinely, I was like, they were just like, this is fine. It would be like they, it would be like someone, and it had been fine. But it'd be like someone doing that in like the bog here, yeah, in the height of summer, being like, we're just gonna make a <laughs> landfill here, and then we're gonna burn the rubbish <laughs> in the landfill in the middle of the bog during dry season. Like, you just no, no, stop it. Yeah, and um, it yeah, it, it look, it makes no sense, but they had done it previously, and that was the justification. So on the twenty seventh of May, nineteen sixty two, firefighters, as they had done in the past, set the dump on fire and let it burn for some time. But unlike in previous years, however, the fire was not fully extinguished. An unsealed opening in the pit allowed the fire to enter the labyrinth of abandoned coal mines beneath Centralia. Okay. Uh, the fire was known to residents. They they knew it was happening mm. because the ground smoked. <laughs> Like the coal smoke would come up from the ground, but they just kind of ignored it, as you do, as you do for um a decade. They were like, "This is fine." Oh my god, you can tell that town is like Irish. They're like, <laughs> "We'll just ignore it." It was it's like when a fire alarm goes off in a pub and everyone's just like, "Way!" and ignores it. Yeah, no, sorry. Just to be clear, they didn't. They did try and put it out, and they they even tried to dig it out, but it had gotten too far into the system. They couldn't stop it. Um, so like, it's not like they just kind of completely ignored it. They did. They did try, and then they were like, "Well, I guess we can't put it out. Let's keep living our lives." So for like ten years, occasionally the ground would start smoking, and someone would be like, "What the fuck?" And they'd be like, "Oh, it's just the mine just the fire." fire. Just the mine fire that's been going since 19, fires. 1962. <laughs> it's so ridiculous, isn't it? It is. Anyway, so people were aware of it, but it wasn't it wasn't causing any problems, really, uh, except for the occasional kind of smoke or whatever. It just it wasn't causing our issues. At least they didn't think Um. On the so it wasn't until a literal decade later. So uh, the gas station owner, who also happened to be the mayor, a guy called mm. John Coddington, he inserted a dipstick into one of his underground ta- tanks to check the levels of, of the gas for the pumps, and he took it out and he was like, "That's a bit warm," and so he lowered a thermometer into the ground tank, um, on a string, and was shocked to discover that the temperature of the gasoline in the tank was, uh, seventy-seven point eight degrees centigrade or one hundred seventy-two Fahrenheit. Right. Which is quite warm. 
okay. gasoline. Yeah, yeah, you'd <laughs> be worried. Big old you? underground tanks of petrol. Yeah, it's amazing that that was still standing by the time that he could. Uh, yeah, lower that dipstick in. But um, the town continued their complete disassociation from the situation and just lived their lives for another couple of decades. Of course, um, of course. They would keep CO2 alarms around, obviously, because the gas emissions and smoke and stuff were getting worse. They also started keeping literal canaries as pets. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> um, Because there was such dangerous burn off of gases that they were like, well, you know, it's like a canary in a mine shaft, except just take the mine shaft out of the equation. <laughs> I'd love to know whether there was like an influx of respiratory, I cannot speak today, especially medical terms, respiratory diseases in this town. Oh, I mean, sure, there there almost definitely was, but weirdly, Mm. I didn't actually find anything on it. Like it clearly Mm. wasn't um wasn't something that they were yeah. they were tracking or at least if they were it's not mentioned in anything because I did read quite a few and I watched a few kind of short YouTube yeah. documentaries and stuff um but yeah like they just and this was so this was a decade after it so this was in the early 1970s mm-hmm. but it wasn't until the early 1980s that things really came to a head so they'd been living with this fire under their town for 20 years at this point and they'd been like it's probably fine if a canary dies we should probably go up the road for a while and get some fresh air, I guess. I don't know what the plan was. So the turning point came in fe- fe- on February 14th, 1981, when a 12-year-old resident named Todd Dumboski fell into a sinkhole, which opened up in his back garden. Uh, it was four oh, feet wide. <laughs> it was four feet wide and 150 feet deep, or 46 meters uh, it suddenly opened up beneath his feet in the backyard. Uh, he managed to cling on to the side of it. He didn't actually fall in. Um, well, he did, but he was. Yeah. Uh, his cousin, uh, 14-year-old Eric, uh, pulled him out of the hole and saved his life. Uh, narrowly missing plumes of hot steam billowing from the hole and tested to contain lethal levels of carbon monoxide. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this is when it all gets really contentious, right? Because... There are a bunch of people who are like, yes, let's just sell the town and get the fuck yeah. out of here. It's literally burning beneath our feet yeah, uh, and trying to kill us. And then there are other people who are determined to stay. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I get it. When you've got your whole livelihood in your home, et cetera, et cetera, it is literally like burning. Literally and burning. holes opening up. Like, Except it is going to hell. They installed these um, like vent chimneys around mm. the town that you can see. You can go, if you go online and Google them, you can you can see pictures of them. They're not particularly thing. They're just like big metal pipes sticking out of the ground and they would vent off a lot of the gases. And it was to stop stuff like that happening yeah. um, so that there actually was a controlled vent of all these burning gases um, to try and like prevent things like sinkholes or, or eruptions happening. Um, and they have a fence around them because they got so hot to the touch. They were dangerous. And they were just scattered around the town. And this was normal. <laughs> I feel like this town is the epitome of that meme that's like the dog in the burning house going, it's fine. Everything's fine. I mean, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1983, uh, the US Congress allocated more than $42 million to help relocate the town. But as I said, there were different groups that formed that wanted to do different things. Um, nearly all of the re- re- uh, residents accepted a government buyout offers um, and more than 1,000 people moved out of, the st- out of the town. It is worth mentioning, though, that 
these houses would have been bought for say thirty thousand dollars back in the day and they would have you know the residents would have gotten maybe ten twelve thousand for them because the government were like well they're really depreciated it's like yeah no fuck they're depreciated (laughs) so like these people were really like there was it was kind of there was definitely some people which i get why they would have been reluctant because it was it was kind of a no-win situation yeah it was get barely like almost no money to like relocate or stay in a town that is literally on fire. <laughs> like, I can't imagine how, like, desperate it must have yeah. felt to be in that situation. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so a thousand people moved out of the town. 500 homes were demolished because they didn't want squatters moving in. So once yeah. people were out of the houses, they just they just bulldozed them. Um, by 1990, the census recorded there are 63 people still remaining, which honestly is still too many people. <laughs> right. There should be no people. There should be no people. In uh, 1992, the Pennsylvania governor, Bob Casey, invoked imminent domain over the remainder of the town uh, and attempted to kick everyone out. He failed. Just FYI. <laughs> Spoilers. Did not work. Um, so, And like the, re- the the remaining residents did actually challenge this, but they also they failed in their legal um, yeah. their legal attempts, but they just haven't left. And it's not like. It's not like this is land the government was going to use for anything else. So I think there's like not a massive amount of impetus to really force people off the land. Yeah. Um, I in two thousand and two, the U.S. Postal Service discontinued the zip code, so it technically doesn't exist anymore. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, there were sixteen homes still standing in two thousand and six, and that was reduced to eleven by two thousand nine. Um, and the governor at the time began the formal eviction of the remaining Centralia residents. Uh, as of 2010, only five houses remained. And as of 2021, it has a population of four and a Ukrainian Orthodox church, which still holds services on a Sunday and people from surrounding towns attend. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's wild. But hmm. but why? <laughs> I don't know. I wonder <laughs> if that church used to be the church that was that that the the priest was cur- uh, talking about in his curse. Maybe. I think so. I mean, I don't actually, but like that would be fun, wouldn't it? It would be. Let's just say um, that's true. Father Ignatius McDermott, or yep. whatever his name was. Uh, something, something Ignatius, something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it's like they've they've managed to get the majority of people. It is. I th- I do find it astounding that people still want to live there. And it's really interesting looking at pictures because now it's like talk about nature taking over. Like you can't even recognize the street grid anymore because obviously they they knocked down a lot of the houses, but the streets and the sidewalks and stuff were still there. They're all gone. Like it's like barely recognizable as something that used to be a town. Oh my God. You know, and that's really only since the 90s. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Um, There was a nearby town as well or a village that was quite small called Burnsville. Um, that also had to be abandoned because of the fire. Oh my god! Uh, and the fire is still burning. It's gone deeper underground now, so it's not yeah. as dramatic when you go to the area. That you don't get the same sort of like literal smoke coming out of cracks in the ground stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's it's still on fire. Like it's still dangerous to live there. Um, there was also a section of Route sixty six which was cut off. Um, because of the damage, so it was obviously part of the, the township of Centralia. And the damage from the fire was so bad that it was dangerous to drive on. And there were these huge cracks and like fissures. Yeah. They used to smoke as well, but they were like deep enough that you'll see like people used to go there and like people would like get in them and be like, ah. Yes, I'm looking at a picture of that at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So like they're, they're you know, you see how it would be dangerous to drive on. 
yeah. obviously the, the town and this bit of highway became kind of a little tourist a weird tourist attraction um and it became known as graffiti highway um and it was quite it was really cool like the the art there like a lot of it was just big dicks but um you know there was also some good and you know it's this weird sort of collaborative art space in a way yeah, really, really fascinating place. But unfortunately, uh, in 2020, uh, some of the locals, all four of them, were moaning because people during lockdown, people were still coming to Graffiti yeah. Highway and the area. Um, and the company that uh, owns the land, a company called Pagnotti, they are a mining town. Shocker. Um, or mining, not a mining town, a mining company. Um, they actually buried that stretch, the stretch of highway. So, oh. yeah, it is now under a whole bunch of dirt. <laughs> um, and okay. they're just gonna I assume they're just gonna let nature continue to reclaim everything so yeah unfortunately it's it's no longer available to be I mean you can go there but it's just dirt yeah, yeah. oh my god that's so, fascinating yeah. so that's the story of Centralia I thought it was a, a it's you know a little bit off center but an interesting story um, yeah. and you can kind of see like obviously you look at the pictures of Centralia itself and it's not nearly as dramatic as Silent Hill no. but you can see how they might have drawn inspiration from a town that was burning from the inside out <laughs> definitely especially like the highway because obviously there's that bit in the film where they go to enter it and they're on that road mm. so yeah that is crazy and also wild at human resolve for you know not wanting to yeah get away I mean, from if, if um if a town in south dublin south county dublin was on fire from the <laughs> underneath would you move away I mean, not that we, you or any of the rest of us could afford to right now, but right. yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> there'd be a mind fire and you'd be like, well, is it going to bring down the rent? <laughs> yeah, probably not. It'd probably increase it. <laughs> um, I don't need a reason to move out of here. I'd be gone in a second. I'm like, oh, no, bye. Um, that's wild. Okay. So that, that was the town that inspired Silent Hill. Yeah. The town of Centralia. Um, Yeah. Hope you enjoyed my weird little tale of idiocy. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, I don't know what we're gonna do next time. Nope. I feel like I we haven't done a haunting in a while. We haven't done a haunting in a while. Wait, well, hang on. The oh, last, wait, no. the last yeah. show we did the Warrens. Now oh, yeah, I didn't do true. my homework very well the last show, so I mean that was probably the only haunting thing about that episode. But yeah, I did. I actually made a database. How. Like, I never make databases of things. Ooh, I do love a spreadsheet. Yeah, so there are some interesting ones on there. Um, okay, Ruby, where can people find you? People can find me at the Ruby Noir, wherever they fancy. And you can find What A Scream at what underscore scream on Twitter and at What A Scream on Instagram. And don't forget to like, review, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And yeah, bye. Bye. <laughs> bye.